Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen and Michael Trout conclude their two-part discussion on his video, Multiple Transitions. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type TROUT20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has Produced. We're first going to focus on his videos, and uh, then later we will be focusing on some of his books. So I would like to, for listeners who don't know about Michael and his work, share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the, Associ- the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration. And in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. So he comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. Yes, and I I think a segment that we want to share next uh, really drives this point home. And so now, I won't let you imagine, even for a minute, that I like you. 
that I need you desperately, that I might ever grow to trust you. These parents, at least at first, and maybe not for quite a long time, aren't getting a whole lot of reinforcement here. And you know, we parents of, of all kinds of kids don't like to admit that we, we require some measure of our own efficacy. We like to think we're above all that, but we're not. We're very tender about our own efficacy. We don't necessarily need the child to say, you're a great mom or dad, or we don't need our neighbors to all compliment us, but we need to find some way to see that we did okay today. And often we have sly and subtle ways of picking that up from the child. He doesn't have to stroke our, our cheek and say, you're a good daddy. But something during the day needs to tell us we're, we, we're on the right path. And these kids not only don't typically give it, they typically do everything they can do to take it away from us. They tell us not only the, the usual things, we're stupid and ugly and fat and can't cook and all those other things they tell us, but they tell, they tell stories about us to the old ladies at the church and to our spouse when he or she comes home or to a neighbor person about how awful we are. They spit at us, they bite us, they wriggle to get away from us, they reject all our overtures. And at the end of a day or at the end of 30 days, we may be left quite empty-handed with regard to whether we're worth a plug nickel. Well, we talk about attachment being a reciprocal experience between parent and child and that, um, you know, some, sometimes we're just thinking the baby, but this brings pleasure and reward to the parent too. It's not just the baby and that there's a whole, you know, reinforcing cycle for that. And a child that's, as you said, rejecting those overtures kind of messes, that, that messes up the whole cycle. Um, and I think can often lead parents into a very, it could be a very sad and depressed or a very, or, or a space filled with tremendous rage um, and confusion of the degree of feelings they have about the child. Uh, how strong they are you know i've sometimes had parents say you know i've i have biological children i have uh i have adopted children i fostered quite a bit and i never felt like harming a child but i feel like harming this child and it's terrifying me mm -hmm. so who must i be who must i be that after all these years that thought came into my mind Mm -hmm. And an irony is, you, you, you mentioned something earlier that prompted this, an irony here is that these parents often got a number of rewards from their social group, their church or friends or others, when they first took in such a difficult child. So a neighbor might say, oh my gosh, you got one of those kids from Romania? I heard they really had awful, awful circumstances there. You're so you're so good, you're so brave, you're so loving. So a lot of rewards came in the beginning. And in fact, some of these kids went through a honeymoon period right in the beginning, by no means all, but some did, where they actually cuddled in in the first few days 
Um, and so that amplified the reward. And then suddenly it was all over. And now the neighbors or the people at church or the others are saying, can't you control that child? Or um, I haven't seen you smile in weeks, Gladys. Or what's the matter with you? Everybody in your family looks glum these days. Or we haven't seen you around the supermarket or the church lately. Mm-hmm. Or or even don't come to to don't don't bring your child to to the children's Sunday school. You know something even more overt. Like we don't we we can't handle that behavior there, which again cannot sometimes be combined with the inference that you obviously don't know how to handle them and they're not doing well. And by the way, some of the most shocking ironies for parents were when they would go to a social place like church, let's just say, and the child's behavior suddenly becomes totally non-representative of that which was going on at home. Yes. Instead of acting out in church, the child cuddles up to some lady in the next pew and says, "You're, you're so soft. Or do you have cookies at your house? Or even if they don't say something nasty about their their foster or adoptive parents, just being good by itself can be for the mom or the dad, at the very least embarrassing, if not actually crazy making. How can this be that the child treats me this way and treats others so warmly? It clearly is me. Yes. And by the way, if the spouse who works and is gone during the day when all this stuff is happening at home uh, isn't catching on, that spouse will often be brought into the twisted circumstances by being preferred by the, the child in the evenings. So the child may run out to the driveway and say, oh, daddy, daddy, I'm so glad you're home. I I love you so much. My mommy's been really mean to me today. And if that goes on long enough and the child is clever enough during the evening to keep dad on his side, dad will really begin to believe what mom is believing about herself, which is it's her. She's doing something wrong. She doesn't have enough love. And under those worst circumstances, she's actually begun to feel like she might wallop this kid. Now dad is against her too. Yes, we, we see that dynamic so often. Um, which leads to that parent spiraling even further, even lower, having even less uh, emotional resources to to manage the situation. And when that's a, a good example, what you just said, of one of those little teeny weeny windows of opportunity for we shrink types who are trying to help. If we can make sense of that, Why would a child want to split his mom and dad? Why would a child want to humiliate you at church by being so nice to that old lady in the next pew? And explain that in a way that really does make sense to the parent. We may have pulled them back from the precipice of at least placement disruption, if not worse. 
but boy, we've got to be very, we've got to be very good at our job because it's got to make sense that the child would do that. And it's not because he's evil and it's not because mom is in fact a bad mom. It, there's the child has a vested interest in keeping things held in that sort of awful tension. Mm-hmm. And how, how I can imagine listeners are thinking, well, how would Michael Trout talk to a parent about that? <laughs> Do you recall any conversations? I know you, you're not big on this is how you do it. Um, but do you recall any? Well, I mean, there were hundreds of them and they were always contextual and circumstantial. So nothing that I would offer as an example should be taken out of context and used as a clever tool. But it would simply involve uh, wondering with the parent, trying to evoke curiosity long enough for there to be a little partnership. Oh, I love that. Because we have to evoke curiosity in the parent. It can't just be us. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so continue. <laughs> well, if, if we're lucky and we can evoke that, then we're, we're sort of two grown-ups trying to figure out what this whirling dervish, where's the energy source? What's the, what's the need to keep spinning, so to speak? What's the need to make daddy turn against mommy? Uh, and, and the need can, can arise out of something as simple as, if mommy and daddy were united, I'd be screwed. I would have no power. I already have almost none, although every hour of every day is devoted to my trying to acquire more. But if I let these two get together, or if I let mom feel the support of that old lady at church and feel loved and my mommy gets stronger, I'm screwed. I must rise up and be tougher than everybody else around me or I won't make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if a parent and I joining our heads together come up with that, and the parent even giggles a little bit at how what an interesting idea that is, and instead of his looking like a whirling dervish who's evil, he looks like a clever little sucker, but not more clever than me, says mom or dad. Now we're now we've got something that she can take home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to move on to another segment of the video. So I'm going to pause here so that will be played. I agree it doesn't make much sense for me to join in with all the other people that have hurt me by hurting myself. But I do it anyway. That's such a painful thing to see. But a wonderful thing when you think about it for a minute because in the in the world in a world in which the child is devoted to acquiring power for survival reasons these moments when he scratches his arm or digs at his hand or pulls the hair out in splotches around his head those are moments where he is admitting vulnerability he's saying you want to know how i feel go to hell i'm not going to tell you but if you watch, I'll show you. This is how I feel. 
Mm -hmm. And he digs at his hand until it bleeds. What an articulate little child. And at that moment, what a vulnerable little child. Yes. If a parent can be helped to see that, it often arouses empathy that hasn't been there before. So that's a little different too than what you were talking about just a minute ago, because you were almost earlier talking about with the curiosity arousing almost a sort of determination to just keep going and figure this out and do this where this is um, empathy for you know the level of pain that the, the child is in. And they go hand in hand, empathy and determination. The <clears throat> next uh, part that I want to share, I'm going to get ready here to play. Am I safe with anybody? Doesn't matter anymore. One of my that, favorite lines. That I was just going to say that you just took the words right out of my, my mouth. It's one of the most powerful lines. It's a very upsetting, disturbing line, um, but it just really puts it all in perspective. Um, so talk to me about that that line. By okay. the way, I should I should acknowledge that the little neighbor girl that agreed to uh, go to the studio with me and let me say it two or three words and then she'd she'd say what I said and that's how we got the, and then I relied on the editor to put it all together so it sounds like a real sentence. She somehow got the feeling tone of those two sentences exactly right and I don't know how she did it. It was almost as if she knew somehow. Um, and the, the part that I wanted, I wanted her to get across somehow, and magically she did, is there's a, there's a moment amidst all the cataclysm of other behavior and pushing away and toughness and rudeness and rejection. There's a moment where the child says, you get this, don't you? You, you know all of this is about my survival. You know that I don't feel safe. And I wonder if I could. I wonder if I could feel safe with you. I wonder if I could feel safe with anybody. And then the other part would automatically come in. Before the child says no, she just wonders one more second. Hmm. Does it matter anymore? Is that still a live issue in my growing personality? In, in how I'm made? Will I ever accept attachment? Will I ever feel close and safe and soft with anybody? Or does it really just not matter? And so you sense that the door is not quite closed. And I wanted that to be there for parents for whom it feels as if the issue is closed. This child will never let me hold them unless there's a bite or a kick or a hair pulling and tucked away and then with it. I want to get to a final segment I wish to play from the video. I'll make you sorry you ever thought about trying to get close to me. I'll make you feel almost a tablet. It's small, 
It's shy how he usually felt. And of course, the little girl that recorded that had a slight lisp. And so when she says, helpless and small as I have usually felt, you sense this vulnerability uh, underneath the angry words. The, the, there's, as in all things with these children, there's always softness and hardness mixed together. But the drive of the child, I, I say this because it was part of the reason for putting it in here to help foster and adoptive parents catch on to this part. The drive of the child to make the parent feel impotent is really a drive to make them feel the way he feels so they'll understand better. And that's pretty darn clever when you think about it. Yes. Since I can't explain it to you, since I don't talk yet, or even if I do talk, I still really can't explain it to you. Maybe I could make you feel small and helpless, just like I feel, without ever admitting to you, by the way, that I do. You know, I was in a supervision session earlier today, and the supervisor said, how do you feel when you're with this child? And um, I think that question to a, a clinician or a parent in the appropriate circumstance is a genius question because it can really give you a window. You know, some of the children that we just feel so inept and incompetent and with, I think it shows us something. So in the end, uh, I'm sure you thought about uh, this video and since it, it was uh, the most requested video, as we said in the beginning, the bestseller of the series, um, why do you think that is? It's, it's certainly quite a bit longer uh, than the, 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 the first one. Um, I don't think that, that that's a reason. I'm just pointing that out. Um, but what are your thoughts about it? And I also want to hear about the reception of it, comments you got over the years, that sort of thing. By the way, I'll take that last part first, because one of the most surprising um, groups of feedback I got was absolutely unexpected. Somehow this film fell into the hands of hundreds of grown children, that is to say, teenagers or 20 and 30 year olds who had grown up in the foster or adoption system and who were, who had a terrible trauma in the beginning. And they wrote to say something like, how did you know my story? Mm. I, was, I was exceedingly uplifted by that feedback. Yeah. Never being accusatory or feeling as if I had invaded their privacy. They were just trying to say, I think, I've been trying to explain this forever to my friends, to my mother, to my wife now, to my, to my, uh, to people I, I care about. I've never been able to quite explain it, but you just explained it for me. And so I had these people look at it with me. You know, that's such, that, that had to be so gratifying because that's exactly what you were trying to do. You were trying to give a voice to what they were feeling and experiencing. 
that's the best that's the best stamp of approval that that it was effective don't you think it ain't bad i'll take it i need a sense of efficacy too yes yes and and how about others um and 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 your thought you know as you've reflected about it you know what what made this one ex so so popular well, I should say that I, it, it was my assumption when it was released that the audience would be small. I mean, while the number of parents and children in this special group uh, seemed large to people like you and to me because they were all coming to us, they were actually a small number around the country. Of all foster and adoptive children, the, the number who are like these children is a small percentage. So I wouldn't have guessed that that this would be such in such demand. Mm -hmm. Leads me to 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 conclude, therefore, not that the group is bigger than I thought, but rather that because it hit the mark so well uh, about these children, and maybe even hit the mark so well for parents describing for them in ways that they hadn't thought of before what they had been up against an unusually high percentage of the total acquired it one way or another. Word of mouth, I learned, was rampant. And it was not only foster parent to foster parents, it was adoptive parents, it was clinicians, it was even academics uh, telling each other, I figured out a way to, to, to make this case or to make this idea more salient, more palpable. Um, and I, I think that's probably why it was so popular. Yeah, uh, there certainly was, when you mentioned word of mouth, that was going on in the community I lived in. All the agencies were like, did you see this thing that Michael Trout made? Have you, have you seen, you know, ever, everyone was buzzing about it and and saying you got to get it you got to see it yeah it's really different you know but it's really powerful and you really need you really need to see it um and i really like one of the final points you've made here that this is not all foster and adopted persons children who were foster children or adopted i think that's where things have gone also sort of askew here where um parents because they're unprepared to deal with very natural behaviors in children who have lost uh family and people important to them um it's become popular okay that child has rad reactive attachment disorder and is this really severe child and to come in in very harsh punitive ways um that have 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 done more damage than good in many cases and i'm not even suggesting these children should have harsh and punitive of course but i do think it's important to say to understand that this is a range of 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 children and um we can't look at them all the same way and decide you know that this certain really structured program where we do a b and c is going to work for this child because he's one of those Yep. So I really want to emphasize that point with listeners and how you um, are also saying even within this group of children, 
we have to be curious. We have to want, we have to remain in a state of curiosity and wonder. There's not going to be the one, two, three steps. Which is, of course, the last thing that clinicians want to hear. Yes. They want to model, and it's the last thing that parents want to hear because they want and, and deserve some answers. Mm-hmm. That's why they were calling people like you and I and wanting to come from across the country because they thought we had them. And we did have some, some ideas, but um, because they're, because these are children, for goodness sakes, uh, because every child, it's such a cliche to say that every child adapts uniquely, but there just is not a one-size-fits-all um, thing that will take care of these problems. The, the answers are really, in some ways, while they're unique, they are also old. They're answers about curiosity and empathy under the very most difficult circumstances where empathy and curiosity are usually smashed by exhaustion and a loss of efficacy. Yes, yes. Well, um, I think this is a good good place for us to end. And the answers aren't easy, but they're there <laughs> often uh, as we struggle through together um, as clinicians, as 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 um, and of course as foster and adoptive parents and um, in supporting these children. So I, I want to thank you uh, for this video. It has had a profound impact in the world of foster and adoption, and I just don't know how uh, we could thank you enough for it, Michael. Awfully glad to have been part of it. Hey listeners, I have some exciting news for you. The book, Raising the Challenging Child, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order and we want to tell you where to get it. Please go to our website, RaisingTheChallengingChild.com, for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practice practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're going to be looking for. The book is filled with easy to implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.